I've always been a person that does a lot of different creative things ever since I was a little kid, like probably too many. Hello and welcome to episode 18 of the Who Cares Anyway podcast. My guest is Christine Shields. And here I will read from her bio at christineshields.net. Christine Shields is an artist and musician from Northern California. She grew up in various locations, most of them rural, from the Central Coast to the Sierra foothills. A solitary life in nature, along with the influence of a vast range of Californians, including hippies, cowboys, bohemians, and punks, shaped her early life. At the age of 17, she moved to San Francisco, attended the Art Institute, and played in her first band as a drummer. Her creative life built around necessity and imagination has taken many forms, including painting, comics, music, and illustration. She currently resides in Sacramento, California. Christine Shields is on that list of people whom I neglected to interview, but certainly could have and perhaps should have for the book, but I wanted to include in this audio series as a compliment uh, to the book. Given that she connects with uh, a lot of what's discussed toward the end of the book, but also to some things that were happening concurrently in New York City in the mid-90s, as we'll hear, and then also in San Francisco after the period in the book. So talking about things like the mission school that's centered around Adobe Books that in turn connects back to Laura Allen, a previous guest on this podcast series, and to Christine Shields' uh, painting, but uh, those of you who, like me, are primarily uh, music people, you'll know her drawings or illustrative work from uh, various releases that you might have in your collection by Sun City Girls, Zip Code Rapists, Phil Franklin or Franklin's Mint, etc. And then she also contributed artwork to uh, several issues of Banana Fish, including uh, cover art. And boy, that is still just scratching the surface. We'll also hear about a, a solo album that she recorded with Tim Mooney, formerly of The Sleepers and American Music Club, in the uh, late 2000s. And then also hear a tribute to uh, one Ronnie Burns, whose uh, name came up uh, first really after I'd done my research for the book, but he uh, passed away in, I believe, 2020 or 2021. And so there's a little uh, connection back to uh, Sacramento and, and or Stockton, that part of California, which again, not San Francisco, but uh, part of the uh, broader Northern California sort of a landscape at the time. So without any further ado, we'll go ahead and get into this interview with Christine Shields. I graduated when I was 17 and I moved with my high school boyfriend into this house on Oak Street, this flat with the Oak Street girls as, as they are still called today. And um, I really needed to get out of my town. Like I came from a really messed up kind of family situation. So the relationship with the high school boyfriend did not last, but it got me out of my family home and into this amazing life in 
San Francisco. So that's how I showed up. So I was like 17, moved in, and all these girls were like, just, I mean, they're still like my best friends and sisters to this day. And they're like, hey, you're part of like our household now. And do you want to be in a band? And I was like, okay. <laughs> they're like, you just play one drum, you know? And we would like share clothes and we get dressed up all crazy when we performed with Archipelago Brewing Company. It was really fun. Was, was that, so I've, I've, even after all the research and interviews I've done, I'm a little unclear about this. The trampolines, was that was that in ABC or Carolina or both? Carolina. Okay. Carolina, but you see, the thing is, is that we were like a sister band to Carolina. We had many of the same members. Jessica Luther was in ABC and also in Carolina and Brandon. And sometimes... Grux's girlfriend Tanya at the time would come. Wow. I think she was a goddamn girl drummer, okay. as we were called. Uh, maybe I could be getting that wrong, but I'm pretty sure I've seen a picture where she's playing, and we would just we'd have like guest drummers, and and I played with Carolina once, um, and yeah, Grux lived right down the street. He's one of the first people I met when I moved there. Okay, because I, I was wondering about um, how those connections were made, but how did you find that house in the first place? So um, Chris and Jana and Jessica and me and Darcy, boy Darcy, and then later there's boy Darcy and girl Darcy. Anyway, we'll get to that. Uh, okay. <laughs> but, um, but, we were all from the Nevada city area I had lived there, you know, or were from there. And so they were friends with boy Darcy and we just moved right in with them. And then he moved out and I stayed and actually like Chris and I had also both lived in this tiny little area. It's called the San Juan Ridge and Barbara Manning also is from there. But I didn't know her till I moved to San Francisco. Okay. So, and, and then to bring it back to the Art Institute. So like when I was interviewing people from the early era, like the late seventies, uh, you know, the early Mabue Gardens uh, punk scene, you know, there was a whole lot of crossover between that and the Art Institute. And part of it was how close the, the, those things were, you know, and how much yeah. North Beach was really central at that time. But from the, the period when you were there, the only person I know off the top of my head who went there was was Darcy, maybe mm -hmm. Har Harvey Stafford. I'm not sure. Yeah. Okay. Oh, he just texted okay. me too. Yeah. Okay. But who, <laughs> yeah. what was there other than that? Was there much crossover between the Art Institute and this kind of music scene? Or was... No. Okay. And it was weird. And I, I've actually talked about that before because... I felt like I had a double life. I did move there to go to the Art Institute and I took a semester off and then started in the fall. I mean, in the spring of 88. And 
I felt like I had this art school life and this music life. Because all we ever did, you know, with the Oak Street Girls, we were either playing shows, getting ready to play shows, or going to shows. We went to music shows all the time, constantly, or parties. I mean, it was just like a nonstop party in the Lower Hate for those few years, you know, and it was really fun and and wild. It's pretty wild. <laughs> but that the lower hate where you live, but then the venues, I'm thinking that was really the peak of the chameleon era or no, the chameleon, the com so at that point, the same space that would become the chameleon was called the chatterbox. Okay. And sometimes we'd go like all the way out to the mission and it was all like boarded up on Valencia street. And I was like, Whoa, where are we? It's a lot. This is a long ways away, like edge of town. <laughs> Uh, which seems so funny now, but um, it was the chatterbox and it was like, you know, this little down and dirty rock and roll punk rock club. And um, suppose I just found a book on it actually a while ago. I was like, oh my God, there's a book about the chatterbox. Supposedly Johnny Thunders had hung out there and like written his name on the wall or something. Okay. <laughs> So there's all this that. like weird lore around the chatterbox, but um, and then it became the chameleon, I guess, probably around the time I moved to the mission, which was 91. Okay. Yeah. So, but as far as the art institute and the music scene, I mean, it seemed weird to me that it was so separate and kind of a shame, but I remember. I didn't even like the Art Institute at first. I thought everyone was super mean and I wanted to leave. I wanted to go to state where all my friends went. But then I, after a while, I started to make friends and I realized not everybody was mean. They were just damaged, like weirdos from whatever little town they were from. <laughs> and they were shy. And <laughs> so I made some friends, but somehow like, I noticed a lot of people that were into art weren't that into music, or at least I thought they weren't into very good music. I know it's snobby, <laughs> but I was snobby. And then the people in the music scene I, I was in just thought that Art Institute people were elitist and posers. <laughs> that was the feeling I got. And I was like, well, you know, I was very serious about being a painter. So I was like, well, I'm just going to keep going to school because I want to learn how to paint and do the other things I was doing. But that's where I met Darcy, a.k.a. Dame Darcy, and at, in animation class and met Jaina Davis there. And um, Harvey, I already knew because he had dated one of the goddamn girl drummers our friend okay. Jerry Garrison, they had dated and <laughs> they met in a really funny way. I'm like, does Harvey want me to tell this story? <laughs> but uh, anyway, he showed up at the Art Institute. Like he was just there one day. And I'm like, Harvey, what are you doing here? He came over from CCA or CCAC as it was known then. Right. Before they got rid of the craft part. And... He later told me 
I was the only person that was nice to him there. <laughs> At the Art Institute? Yeah. Okay. But Harvey's, Harvey's great. And yeah, so then, you know, and he was living in the mission. And then there was, I kind of segued into that whole scene too, which was a little different. Yeah, and so at some point in here, I'm not sure of the exact timeline by any means, but you started doing stuff for for Banana Fish, but maybe that was later. No, or... that was yeah, that was like around ninety, I guess. Yeah, I I think it was before. So I lived at Oak Street for four years, and then the household just kind of started to fall apart, and some people moved out, and I moved to this weird area off of the Visadero and Geary that I jokingly called Lower Pacific Heights. But I guess it's actually called that now. And it was this really nice Victorian flat across from the projects that people from the Art Institute had lived in and, and their friends for a long time. So I lived there and Dame Darcy lived there. And my friend Eric Becht, who's also really tied into the music world. So I lived there for a while and then I was like, I don't want to live here anymore. So I moved to the mission into a haunted house. <laughs> and then, yeah, I, you know, but I already knew some of the like guys from, uh, you know, I'd already met Seymour Glass and, you know, some of the guys from like communion distribution slash boner records like that whole scene and harvey was tied into that because he did all those like amazing melvin's record covers oh okay i didn't yeah. even realize that okay yeah the, they're really cool they're, he did them in the you know in the style of those kiss album covers oh right okay those like, were his oh like, okay you know one of each yeah yeah. Okay, I didn't realize that. Okay, so, yes. And yeah, there was also he lived he lived with uh Chaz and and this guy Bob McDonald on Mission Street in the Starlight warehouse. Okay, that connects a dot as far as why that label is called what it is. Starlight yeah. for company. Okay. Yeah, which I guess can I do a drawing of that for feel like I did for banana fish but um yeah and and I don't know if Harvey told you about his infamous birthday party there but that was one of the craziest things <laughs> ever I've actually, yeah I've actually never I reached out to interview him but he put but he told me I should interview this other person instead because it was I was specifically reaching out about the pet hospital which is a little earlier oh yeah and so he put me in touch with someone else and sort of deferred and so I've never actually talked to him other than just the message. I forgot he lived at the pet hospital, which also Donald the Nut from Three Day Stubble lived at. And that place was, I think I was laying there a couple of times, but I remember a really crazy party there too, where unfortunately everyone got so wasted and somebody's like films were all ruined and there was a big uh, fight, but um, that place was creepy. It was felt super haunted by pets <laughs> i guess right. i don't know. <laughs> yeah. or veterinarians i don't know but um it was a weird weird place i thought um yeah but then harvey lived in on mission street 
So, and that was, that was the chameleon era that started then. Yeah. So, so all this is happening kind of as you're wrapping up at, at the art Institute and then, um, I don't know what comes next after that, as far as, uh, because I know you had at least a few more years in San Francisco before moving to, to New York, but we're, and you were doing a lot of different things as far as uh, drawing uh, album cover illustra- or illustrations that got used on album covers, but then your different contributions to zines and then later your comic book. But I don't know the whole timeline on that. And if you were at that point, um, maybe trying to figure out a course between like this underground kind of music world or adjacent to music world versus some kind of more capital A art career and kind of where were you in that period right after you finished uh, oh, the that's art a Institute? good question I may still be trying to figure that out uh, okay. <laughs> but um you know like I as a younger person before I came to San Francisco I was always obsessed with music and you know those were the kids I would hang out with at, in high school you know like the weirdo punk rock new waiver kids and um we just go to shows all the time whenever i could get away with it or sneak out of the house (laughs) so that was already my world and then i lived in sacramento also for a year there was like a great scene in sacramento sacramento is a really interesting little music history scene but that was my world. I was like, I love music and I love to draw. And I was also obsessed with fashion and these like certain illustrators that were amazing fashion illustrators. And I just wanted to draw all the things that were woven into the world of music and, you know, this whole world of, of, the style of it and everything that was like what I escaped into away from my family and stuff. So moving into the city, it was just like a continuation of that where I was still at shows all the time and I like to draw. So people would ask me to do stuff and I would do it. And I wanted to be a serious painter but I also didn't really know how to, that seemed like this really elitist world that I didn't have entree into. And so when I moved to New York, which was not that much later, it was like 90, 93. um, I had no idea how to even approach that world or where, you know, I went, I just slid right into this kind of comics and zine and illustration and shows more music stuff that that's just what I did all of that jumbled up together and Darcy and I were in a band together uh, yeah she mentioned that yeah I hadn't realized that that was in New York until recently when I was reading it the way she told it to me because everyone in it I thought had lived in San Francisco as well I don't know about Ian Christie Ian Christie had not lived in San Francisco but he would come out and visit later after he met Harvey and, and other people, but 
he lived in Hoboken at the time. Oh, okay. And I met him through, I moved to New York. And then I think Darcy lived in like Rhode Island or Providence or something. And then moved down to the city. And we all ended up in Brooklyn. And we had this band for a little while. But she and I had also, since we were both really into animation, I was obsessed with with film, but I thought I can never raise the money to make a film. So comics were like a little, like a cheap way to make something like a film, like a story with pictures. And it was just really natural to, to segue into that and illustration. And she was doing her comics and she played banjo. And then I learned to play banjo and I tap danced. So we just started like doing this stuff together and it continued for a while in New York. I admit I have not seen copies, just some stills uh, online of Blue Hole, but I was trying to get a sense of, you know, how that fit in to the sort of landscape where you've got like the underground music zines with Banana Fish certainly being a, a prime example of that. But then there's this comics world, but they're comic zines. And in a sense, my, I gather that that's kind of its own space or its own its own thing. Was was there much overlap in terms of those the underground music zines versus the, the comics that you were doing? Oh, there's tons of overlap. I mean, as far as like the people that were, yeah, I would say in San Francisco, like, you know, that's like around the time that Darcy and I were roommates. And oh, by the way, like before that, when I met her at the Art Institute, then she met, you know, uh, my roommates and friends. And I'm not sure if that's how she ended up in Carolina, but maybe, but she moved in to, this household with Darcy Drollinger, who was in this band Enrique, who are amazing, and my old high school friend, Jason Messier. So they had girl Darcy and boy Darcy at the time in this house. Then I moved in with her later. And so we were just really uh, both in this same scene of people that was like the communion, revolver, boner records, crew, Seymour Glass, banana fish and she was in Carolina and then she met Lisa Suckdog and was doing a lot of stuff for roller derby and Lisa was friends with Jaina and Jaina had a zine called Flatter which I did a lot of stuff in so we did a lot of stuff together and separately but we had a, like a lot in common at the, that time and then we both ended up in New York in another, like this group of comic book artists. It was so fun, like a wild crew. And there weren't like very many women doing comics then in that, in New York. So, yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, I, I'm not, uh, I have only the most cursory knowledge of comics kind of in general, but I know the late 60s. San Francisco, there, there, it had its own obviously tradition with um, Clay Wilson and Crom. Yeah, was yeah. there was that something that was uh, 
on people's radar screens or did that seem like a distant i mean i don't know how distant that seemed in in the past obviously it's not the same social circles but was was that a, the stuff in at all an influence or was that um well it's weird because like as time goes by you start to see how everyone's connected like robert crumb's crazy brother was on the street then who you if you've ever seen that film crumb yeah you know i was like oh my god that's that guy that we always see on the street and you know um there were all these connections and then like later like getting to know like Dan Klaus and he knows Crumb, like they all know each other. And so there's some connection, but um, for me personally, as far as influence wise, like I was aware of it, like I worked on hate street. So the hippie dream was still holding on. So (laughs) I guess it would be kind of like saying, yeah, is, is the, was the grateful dead an influence on Carolina? That's about the, uh, (laughs) that's about as, uh, (laughs) as as course of a question as i'm kind of you know but it's kind of like i can only make these analogies and i imagine that it was like that's a pretty different era pretty different uh mindset no and, but it's uh, it it's but it, i mean it is part of the family tree for sure because i mean and crumb himself wasn't really like into the hippie thing he just was doing his thing and it you know, he, he really aesthetically affected the counterculture. Um, but anyway, um, his, you know, keep on trucking and, and the cheap thrills album cover, like this stuff was just around all the time living in the hate. And I grew up in a hippie town, but, um, personally for me, what got me into comics was love and rockets, the Hernandez brothers. Okay. That the band is named after. Okay. <laughs> so I just became obsessed with that in the late 80s. And I think that planted a seed in my mind. Yeah. So that's more, but I'm sure they, I'm sure they know from, they all know each other. And then when I moved to New York and Darcy was in New York, she knew these comic book artists and I knew, you know, like all these people knew each other and the music and comic scenes were separate, but they overlapped, you know, and a lot of these people worked at Screw Magazine, <laughs> which was I, a really trippy scene. It was like, yeah, I think yeah. it was in the Banana Fish interview where you talked about writing for that publication as well as the san francisco bay guardian and your verdict was that uh screw was uh easier to work with or work for (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean the guy who ran screw was a controversial figure for sure but they had the world's nicest art director kevin hine i think that's okay that i (laughs) and um he's just a wonderful person and he he just they had you know they had the money to stockpile covers so uh, if if somebody was desperate to make their rent or whatever you could just call them up and say can i do a cover yeah sure it wasn't a lot of money but 
And then I remember, I mean, they just had these crazy parties there. The people who worked there were either like rockers or like comic weirdos. Those are the people like worked in the offices there. So the parties would be like rocker people or like punk rockers. <laughs> I don't know, whatever you want to call them. Rocker seems to fit better for that scene. <laughs> and uh, and like strippers and porn people and <laughs> like comic nerds and and that spectrum of all like hanging out together. It was like Boogie Nights. When I saw Boogie Nights, I was like, Screw Magazine was like the poor man's Boogie Nights. <laughs> but they had, I, I, I wandered into, I went looking for the bathroom once and the art director was actually horrified that I found the men's room. He's like, oh no, there's a nice ladies bathroom, which was all pink and clean. But I was like, what? No, the men's bathroom has our crumb graffiti. <laughs> Speaking of our crumb. Because okay. all these like really famous underground cartoonists had worked for them for a long time. So they had amazing graffiti in the bathroom. <laughs> so this would have been mid 90s New York? Uh, or... Yeah, exactly. Then eventually yeah. you went from there to LA. Is that right? Or... Was there a um, stop in between? I came back to San. I always came back to San Francisco. I've moved there back there so many times, but yeah. yeah. Oh, and by the way, like a lot of these people worked for uh, the New York Press and like the Village Voice, um, stuff like that. And they all and they were just a great group of people who were would help you get jobs. They were really supportive of each other unlike what I saw in like the art world. So I guess I just, to me at the time, I felt like that's where the excitement was, was going to shows and like the Lower East Side and East Village and stuff and all the kind of zine culture happening. It was really great. But yeah, I came back to San Francisco, tried to keep being an illustrator, but the work ethic that I had learned in um new york didn't fly in california <laughs> which is why i said like it's easier to work for you know screw and <laughs> it was just um, a different scene i lived there a couple of years again and then moved to la for a couple of years I, I, I think it was a different interview where you said something uh i think it was uh, uh one that i was reading online where you said that it, it got kind of I don't know if dark was the word, but mid nineties, but I gather that that's kind of, you know, there was a period in let's say 95, 96, 97, where a lot of like bands are breaking up, people are moving away and uh, maybe early.com stirrings are, are happening and changing things. But it's, I gather that's, that was when you had that, that stint there of two years before moving to LA or, or what was it about it that seemed unpleasant? at that time? I actually, I think I was probably referring to why I moved to New York. I'm oh, guessing okay. because that, the scene got really dark. You know, that just happens sometimes. It was like, it was really amazing. I mean, you know, Fax Ted, bands like that were playing at, all the all these great bands were playing at the Chameleon. It was like everyone's living room. 
it was amazing. Um, and you know, other play, other venues as well, but, um, there was really a lot of great stuff going on at the same time. It felt really, really dark and people were not really being very cool to each other. There was a lot of mean, mean attitude and some not very great drugs circulating. <laughs> it's just, it's like a dark cloud camped out over the mission for a while. And I was like, I am, I'm sick of this. And, and it was just, my life was just pushing me like go somewhere else. And I was going to, I was going to move to Prague, but I ended up in New York instead. I'm glad I did. So that was like way before the kind of dot com thing really it was a few years before that. And then I came back and yeah, it was kind of like, it was okay, but I just, I think there were breakups, breakups too, where I was like, I need to move. That's what I would do then. I can't stand to be here anymore. Move to another city. But then when I, yeah, I moved to LA until 2000 and came back. And then that was like a new, totally new scene at like Adobe books. And that that was great. I wanted to ask you about that because there, you know, we were, we would have been there at the same time, but somehow um, maybe a couple of degrees of, of, or one degree of separation. Cause I certainly knew where Adobe books was and uh, other people I knew would talk about these events there. And somehow it just wasn't where that wasn't where I was ending up. But what did you see there in the early two thousands in terms of like, what was exciting and they talk about the mission school. Was that already a term that was being used at the time? I guess it was starting to be used then. Um, so, and of course, all these little scenes, all, you know, they're like this Venn diagram. Right. They all bleed into each other. They all like move around. But um, I had gone into Adobe Books because Laura Allen worked there. Before I lived in LA, you know, it was a place I would stop in and just had a lot of character. Owner Andrew was just such a welcoming, interesting person. He loved artists and poets and musicians and weirdos. And so all these people would just, you know, end up there. So I already kind of knew that about Adobe, but then I moved to LA and came back. And then I walked into Adobe and felt something, you know, because just from from scenes I'd been in and neighborhoods before in my life, I started to be able to recognize this kind of electric feeling and not take it for granted like I may have before. Like, oh, this is just what it's like. It's not always what it's like. It's like there are special times when things gel in a certain way. And um, when I came back, I felt it. I felt the electric feeling at Adobe. And I was like, something's happening here. And it's good. And what was especially good about it for me was that the musicians and the artists were not separate at all at that point. Everybody was like interwoven. Uh, the artists made music, the musicians made art, and um, they weren't separate scenes. And there was just all of a sudden all this talent and character congealing in this place. So, 
yeah, there were so some people I'd known from before, like Lara, Alan, um, and some people that I I met tons of people there, like Chris Johansson and so many others, like John Dwyer from the OCs was around and I was like, this guy's amazing. And yeah, it's just oh gosh. I mean, I wanted to make a whole book just about Adobe called the Adobe book. <laughs> That's just ephemera and uh, art and people writing about it because it really should exist. But I just, I'm like, I can't do all that. <laughs> but I, I hope it does happen um, because it was just, and, and still continues. It's not the heyday anymore, but yeah, it's just been one of those hubs. The mission school started with people who I happened to be uh, at the San Francisco Art Institute with, but I wasn't really connected to them at that time. I knew some of them, but like Alicia McCarthy and Margaret, no, not Margaret, she wasn't there, um, Barry McGee and Ruby. And anyway, there were people that were like going out and doing graffiti and I was sort of aware of the graffiti art and uh, I, you know, when I moved to New York and then when I came back and met Chris Johansson, uh, I realized, oh, he's friends with all those people. So while I was away, this whole kind of congealing of this art scene had happened and those people were like the core of what was later called the mission school but some people describe it as like a, a larger group of people which it really should be but yeah it's been fun in a certain way of course was the mission school or or that kind of activity what inspired you to to take up painting again or Hmm. Well, I guess I was in sort of a no man's land personally in um, LA for a couple of years. So I was like, what am I doing? Like I still played banjo and I still did art, did illustration and stuff. Sometimes I worked at the museum, Mocha, but I never quite could get my, I just didn't feel like I fit there or something. So I left, <laughs> but um I've always been a person that does a lot of different creative things ever since I was a little kid, like probably too many. I have to stop myself because I just, I'm a, I'm curious and <laughs> I'm like, how do you, well, I want to figure out how to do that, but I've always drawn and painted. And so I've just gone through different iterations of using those skills to do different things, which sometimes make me a living. And sometimes are my just my own creative vision. So I do think I showed up back there and I I saw and felt this thing that was happening. And there were people, you know, that knew me from before who were like, hey, you know, be in this show, you know, because of like juxtapose magazine, stuff like that. There was this kind of, I don't know, I don't really love the term lowbrow um, or feel like a part of that exactly or what it's become. But um, 
there was a part of the art world which was really like influenced by more illustrative or comic art qualities and there were a lot of shows for that kind of work and that sort of like blended into the mission school thing or the mission just the style of the mission neighborhood doing art and also creativity explored was across the street from adobe which is like if you know that place the art center for adults with developmental disabilities and i really feel like their presence in the mission and in san francisco has really uh, affected the aesthetic in a great way there's so many great artists that came out of there and they always send collaborations with artists that don't have disabilities. <laughs> and so that was a big part of it. So there's just all this like really great crossover and it really had a inclusive feeling more than other scenes in the art world that I've seen. This might have been a place where we were in the same uh, room at the same time, which would have been uh, 2005-ish. I'm not sure, but James Good did a thing, this eight-channel audio thing at a house in Potrero Hill that had the pencil staircase. And I thought the house was called Pennsylvania, but the house has a different name. But yeah, what what's the story behind that house and your involvement in it? Yeah, so so Jaina, um, aka Jaina B, who had gone to the Art Institute for a while and then dropped out and had been in this band Enrique with my Nevada City High School friends. Jaina purchased a house at some point and then they just started inviting their friends to do stuff there. And I mean Sometimes we did probably didn't know what we were doing, but <laughs> I was one of the main people. And Jason Messier, who's such an amazing artist, um, did the pencil stairway, did a portrait of Jaina as an old woman, <laughs> as Granny, the character of Granny's Empire of Art, which is what okay. that place is called. And James Good. I had known James Good since I started at the Art Institute because he was one of these weirdos who, after a while, you realize they're not a student there. You're <laughs> like, you don't go to school here, do you? <laughs> so he just hung out. And he'd come from a really interesting, you know, scene of, like the way he grew up in New York was pretty trippy. So... You know, his dad had a theater that showed John Waters' first films. And apparently Cookie Mueller was his babysitter, <laughs> which I'm just so blown away by. Anyway, okay. uh, <laughs> so James, he was just always around. And uh, I already knew him. And then, you know, he was connected to the Carolina people. And then Phil moved out in the early 90s. And... I went out with Phil and yeah, we went out like many times <laughs> over the years. So uh, 
uh, and James and Phil were old had gone to art school together. So there's just it's all a big web. It's this crazy web. <laughs> um, but yeah, James did that piece at Granny's Empire of Art. And Jason and I worked together and Kate Finker and other artists doing all this amazing stuff at Granny's over the years. So it's an art house. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It, it's, um, I had never seen anything like that, uh, that staircase in particular, but, uh, and I didn't necessarily even get to see the rest of the house cause it was mostly dark. I mean, it was, it wasn't like a tour of the house. It's just that that's where the, the thing was, but then, and then coming back to the music thing. So your, your, uh, album came out in 2010 with, uh, someone who, Oh, kind of in terms of the book, it connects back to the very beginning of the book, uh, with Tim Mooney uh, being in the sleepers and being uh, then in Toiling Midgets, you know, was part of the, the real early period that that I got into. And then that album that you did at his studio, he played drums on it. And that but that would have been really toward the very end of his his life. But what what was the what were the circumstances behind that as far as, you know, working with Tim Mooney and uh, at his studio there. Yeah, so um, my cousin Jude Mooney was was married to Tim. Okay, and like, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, so and I mean that's another crazy story. My cousin and I didn't know each other existed until we met at the Art Institute through a painting. I mean that's another okay. really like strange story. But we found each other and we've been super close ever since. And she married Tim Mooney. And at some point, you know, she's, he had this really great recording studio. Pig's closer. head or closer? Okay. Closer. Okay. Closer, yeah. That Joe Goldring was at. And anyway, they had a whole scene going on there. And Jude said to Tim that he should make an album with me. And I was like, oh, my God, because I, you know, a lot of my life I played music with other people, but I never considered myself a musician, really, just a music lover. And I was kind of shy about it. I had made some recordings that Seymour Glass put out with Banana Fish. And that was sort of like the first music of my own that was put out into the world. So it was something I always wanted to do and it ended up happening. He worked on, he played drums on it. He, I mean, really, I really feel like that album is, it's Tim's album too. He put so much into it. I wrote all the music and I made a lot of the decisions and I brought in a lot of people to play on it. Really great musician friends like Willie Winan and Sheila Bosco and Joe Goldring and Tim of course played on it oh gosh I hope I'm not leaving anyone out but and friends came in and sang on it Jane and B and anyway it was it was really a great experience but sort of a tragic thing happened which I won't get too deep into but the guy who was had become a like a partner in had started a record label and had really wanted to work with Tim 
and he wanted me on his label and that's how all this happened and then he kind of went in a really bad direction and so the music just got shelved which was really heartbreaking for me I was like I can't believe this you know uh that's like one of the best things I feel like I've ever done and it's just never gonna come out but then Phil Franklin uh when we were back together said why don't you ask Chris Johansson to put it out and I was like I can't I can't do that I'm terrible at asking for things I just it's really hard for me but he pushed me to do it and I asked Chris who had this great record label Awesome Vistas it did small batches that are all handmade like silk screen there's you know beautiful beautiful records and um, I asked him and he's like oh yeah I I want to do it so that's how it ended up happening it took a while um but that's yeah. how that record came to be okay I couldn't figure out what it came out in 2010 yeah that, okay so then it was recorded if it took a while then it must have been recorded more like what oh seven or something I don't know like how I guess was- maybe yeah oh seven or oh eight yeah I think it took a couple years okay yeah. okay so it so then it wasn't as close to the end of Tim Mooney's life as I thought but it was getting there um yeah 2012 yeah and so um and it seems like that was a, a one-off I mean at a certain point you I don't know when you moved from San Francisco um how long ago that was to to where I guess you're in Sacramento now well I had moved out to upstate New York um and like 2008 with phil franklin and then you know the economic downturn happened and we ended up moving to sacramento into this family house of mine here and it was supposed to be temporary but it ended up being quite a while yeah and we did a lot of music and art stuff together and then I moved back to San Francisco for a couple of years and then I ended up back in Sacramento. So what's the the last time? Uh, I don't know. I'm, I imagine you don't get the snapshots that I do. Cause like I, I would, would go out there and there might be five years in between like the last uh, I had a gap that went to 2016, 2019, 2023. And so each time I would go out there, it would just be kind of jarring in terms of how much had changed. But yeah, um, was there a point when it just got to be like, this is too much for one reason or another, or was it just too unlike what it had been before or just too impractical to live there or all, all of the above? Uh, all of the above. And, and it happened in like, kind of like waves, you know, um, I'd say like some people when the dot com thing happened, you know, when I was trying to move back from LA to there, I thought, oh no, I'm not going to be able to afford a place. But I was able to move right back into the rent control department I lived in before. So it was, I was able to do that. And then the Adobe, that whole scene in the mission was so vibrant that I was thanking my lucky stars that I came back. But later it started to, it just got, harder and harder 
as people lost their foothold. And the last stint that I did there when I was managing Adobe, the new Adobe books, I just couldn't make it. You know, I, I, I couldn't move out of where I was. There was no way I could, I couldn't afford anything. So, and I didn't like it anymore. You know, I just, when you've had like a glorious time in a place in your youth, and then it, it changes so much and it makes it so hard to do what you love to do, then it's hard to stay there. I would have if something, a door had opened up, but it, it really didn't. So I was like, well, okay, I gotta, I gotta go. But, um, you know, I still, I still go, there will be events in San Francisco where everyone comes out of the woodwork from a certain scene and it'll be great. Or when it's a beautiful sunny day there and everything's just right. It, the magic is still there, but I usually don't feel like I can or want to live there anymore. <laughs> yeah. I feel like the, the extremes have, have gotten more extreme and that's really dissonant. Like there's some real dissonant juxtapositions such as five-star restaurant pantless person with a syringe in arm out front kind of yeah. uh and uh the extremes of 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 wealth and opulence and the extremes of misery and um uh, desperation uh yeah side by side like that is it, kind of yeah dissonant is is i don't know that's the best word i can think of but um i mean it's the same here in sacramento to a lesser degree but people are really down the whole state and maybe the whole West Coast, it's it's pretty harsh um, in the cities in that way. Yeah, but I mean, I still have friends who still live in San Francisco and still have pretty good lives. They're sad their friends aren't there as much. <laughs> but yeah. Oh, it made me think of um, like Paula Frazier from Tarnation is still there and doing great stuff. Has such a great band and, you know, Tarnation started out on Nuff said way back right, then. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, there's so many people that are just amazing. that are connected to that. I, I really feel like it was the San Francisco time that just, you know, built this community family tree that has just gone on and on, even though everybody's a diaspora all over the place now. And I miss it. I miss being around my, I guess, peers. There's great people here too. And I have great friends here, but you know, like I'm in this shared art studio and everybody's so much younger than me, <laughs> which is fine. I love them, but it's not the same. Like I went up in January, Chris Johansson invited me up because, oh, I mean, I don't know if this guy uh, Ron Burns has come up in, in any of this, but he passed away during the pandemic and he was in so many bands. He was in Smog and Star Pimp and oh my gosh, just on and on. He was such a great person. So he had this band Sunfoot with Chris and Brian Rumford. So 
Chris had everybody come up to Portland and play this beautiful show. They had recorded all this stuff before he passed away and they were able to put out one more album and just really dedicate this beautiful show to, to him. So it was amazing. It was so great to be around all these people from San Francisco and Portland. And, you know, it was, it was really special after a pandemic time of being alone in a room. Yeah.